All right, the word. First Samuel chapter 16. A very, very familiar portion of scripture. But let's see if we can get some new light from an old window. So 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, reading from verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, saying, I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. The elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah to pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for I will not sit down till he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, or red, Headed or red complexion, that means. So everybody say amen to the redheads. Amen. amen. Thank God. So he was ruddy and bright eyes and good looking. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Uh, a few weeks ago, I think it was Tony, usually is, Tony does these things, sent me an email called The Invisible Man. And it was a series of pictures. I, I don't know where the man, was it China or somewhere he came from, China? And what he did, he would say, say for instance, he would stand against a brick wall. He would paint himself same as the bricks behind him and he just blend it into the brick wall and then he would stand beside a great big mechanical digger He'd paint himself the color of the tire and the color of the digger, and it re you really, really had to look hard at that one to actually see him at all. <laughs> he literally looked like the invisible man. Have you ever felt like the invisible man, the invisible woman? When you're around people, when you walk into a room 
and nobody seems to notice that you have just walked in. You kind of just blend into the wallpaper, as it were. Feel like a spare part. One man said he felt like the second blacksmith in a one-horse town. That doesn't feel very good, does it? Perhaps you feel maybe that you're the black sheep of the family, the least favored one. Nobody has ever killed a fatted calf for you. And whenever the party invitations are given out, it just never quite seems to come through your letterbox. So maybe you feel a bit like a zero, that somehow or other you are continually overlooked. Well, if that is you tonight, I have got good news for you. And here's the good news. When man overlooks, God oversees. When man overlooks, God oversees. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin or a farthing? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And then Luke 12 and 6, he said, Are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins? And not one of them is forgotten before God. So one farthing got you two sparrows, Two farthings got you five sparrows. Got you four and one free. That's almost as good as Tesco, isn't it? Wonder did Tesco get that idea from the Bible? Buy one, get one free. You see, that which is to man insignificant, that which is to man of absolutely no consequence, when man overlooks God oversees. Jesus counted the insignificant sparrow. Even the very hairs of your head, he said, are numbered. In David's earliest mention, he was overlooked. Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Actually, no. The youngest is not here. There he is, look, he's on the hill looking after the sheep. And we know that Jesse didn't even rate David, didn't even count him, thought he was so insignificant, of no value, not as a son, but of no value to what Samuel was looking for. In his mind, he didn't add up, it just did not compute Surely the prophet, if he's looking for a king, would not be looking for the youngest, the least in the family, the one that's doing the menial task of looking after the sheep. After all, it hardly been voted the boy most likely to succeed. Sure he wouldn't. He'd hardly get the young hopeful of the year award. But thank God when man overlooks, God oversees. And God had a plan, he had a purpose for David's life, and even though in his very own family he was completely overlooked, but God was overseeing. Have you ever been overlooked by your family or by your peers? 
Bible says that Isaac loved Esau, the eldest. But Rebekah loved Jacob, the younger. Favoritism is not a very good thing in a family. Sure it's not. It can cause all kinds of problems. and certainly caused problems in this family. Now, of course, Esau was a man's man. He was hairy. He was hardy. He was a hunter. He was the outdoor type. He was athletic. He would have been the Bear Grylls, the survivalist of his day. And it's easy to understand why Isaac, who, by the way, if you read about Isaac growing up, I mean, Isaac was a kind of a sensitive, you know, he went out at the fields at evening time and walked along the barley fields and thought about finding a wife and all the rest of it, you know. And so he was, a, he was a kind of a sensitive guy. So you can understand that when, you know, maybe Esau was everything that he would like to have been. And he certainly favored him. There's no question about that. And of course, in those days, the eldest seemed to be favored. But Jacob, whom Rebekah loved, he was a plain man. He was a stay-at-home type. He was a thinker. He was a deep thinker. He used his brain rather than brawn. He would have been more at home in the kitchen. He was kind of contemplative. If Esau was the all-action guy, then Jacob was the chess player type. They were entirely different in nature. Now, God promised that the elder would serve the younger, and that was against the natural order of things. That was not expected to be. It was always that the eldest, he would the one beget the birthright. He would the one with the full responsibility. He would be one who would step up to the mark and the plate. He would be the one that the rest of them would look up to and serve. But God changed the order in his family. And God made a promise, and God said that the elder would actually serve the younger. Now, there wasn't much time between these two. Remember, there were twins. But there was only minutes between them, but certainly Esau was born first. And even though Isaac had totally overlooked young Jacob, and even though he had looked at Esau as the natural successor to the family. He would be the next patriarch. But God had different plans. God was overseeing and God made sure. Now, it wasn't a very savory episode if you read on and you find out what Rebecca, his mother, and also, uh, you know, how that whole thing panned out and the lies and the subdiffuse and all the deception went on to get the birthright. But in spite of all that, God would have found another way. God had a better way, but they chose that way. But in spite of all of that, God was overseeing what man was overlooking. Now, history repeated itself. Because years and years later, whenever Jacob himself was married and he had a family, didn't he go and do the exact same thing? Didn't he show favoritism within his own family? Wasn't he the one that favored Joseph above them all? In Genesis chapter 37, it tells us this.
In verse 3 of Genesis 37, it says, Now Israel loved Joseph more, that Israel is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age. Now, in the natural, you could understand that. You know, this was the son of his old age, and, you know, this, this was wonderful for him. But he made him a favorite, and it caused big problems. He also made him a tunic of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father had loved him more than all his brothers, they hid at him and could not speak peaceably to him. And so you can see right away there that there's going to be problems here. This coat of many colors, it just reeked of favoritism. And every time he wore it, he was very proud to wear it. But every time the brothers looked at it, all they could see was, yeah, you love that one, but you hate us. Now, that's not exactly true, but that's the way that they took it. And so the brothers could not understand, could not see why the old man loved Joseph more than them. And so they overlooked him. They completely overlooked him. They could see no purpose in his life. And they couldn't wait to get rid of him and do away with him. And we know how the story ended. They called him this dreamer, so we don't need to go into that full story. But we know how that ended. But even though they overlooked him, God was overseeing him. And God made sure that he would be put into that privileged and special position in Egypt that he one day would become their actual savior. So God oversees when man overlooks. Do you ever think about Jesus? In John chapter 7, there's just a little insight into what it was like for him growing up and his family. John chapter 7, And after these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. And his brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. Boy, you can just, you can just sense... A little bit of the tension there. Can't you just sense a little bit of the, maybe the jealousy or whatever they were feeling at this time. It wasn't good anyway. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. There's a telling statement. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Jesus was the eldest. He was the firstborn. There was others. There was brothers and sisters. And it shows you that all of his growing up years, all right into his very into his real adulthood, even when he had begun his ministry, they still did not believe who he was. Now, I wouldn't suggest for a moment that Mary showed favoritism to him. I think she was a very wise mother. The Bible says when the angel told her about Jesus, it says she kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And we have no scripture to say that Mary, uh, you know, was like Jacob or like Isaac that made a favorite of him. No doubt she watched him and no doubt she treated him well as she would do all of, her, all of his siblings and all of her sons and daughters. But somehow or other, they just didn't get it. They couldn't see it. To them, he was just 
the eldest brother. You know, and I'm sure there's some, you know, we've got three in our house at the minute, and there's some rough and tumble sometimes, and there's hair pulled, and there's nips, and all kinds of stuff goes on. And I could imagine in Jesus' household, I'm sure there's a bit of rough and tumble at times, and they wouldn't treat him any different than they treated any of the rest. But he was different. And even though all of his siblings did not believe in him, even though they overlooked him completely, but God was overseeing when man was overlooking. Are you getting the picture tonight? In 1 Chronicles chapter 4, 1 Samuel 1 and 2 Kings 1 Chronicles chapter 4, in verse 9 it says, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, because I bore him in pain. His name means sorrow maker. Imagine being called that. Sorrow maker. You're a big pain. <laughs> That's really what it means. Saying, because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. Now this is one of the only translations that actually puts it this way, and it's, it's the correct translation. A lot of the translations say that I may not feel pain, that I may not feel trouble and pain. But this actually says that I may not cause pain. And God granted him that which he requested. Jameson Fawcett Brown, the classic commentary, puts it this way, Let me not experience the grief which my name implies and which my sins may well produce. Now understand that this young boy grew up to be a man, but all of his growing up years, right into adulthood, he was always conscious of what his mother called him. And no doubt about it, everybody knew what the name meant. Sorrow maker. You're a big pain. You're trouble. Imagine calling your child that. Imagine having to grow up with that millstone hanging around your neck when you're going to school. Oh, why, we know who you are. You're the troublemaker. You're the sorrow maker. You're the one that caused your mother all that grief and pain. So you can understand when he was growing up how ostracized he must have felt, how insignificant he must have felt, how troublesome it must have been. And you can sense that in what he's praying here. I, 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 I don't want to cause pain. I've been called this all my life. And maybe my sins would cause pain. He's desperate not to do and not to be and not to aspire to the name that he's been called. Most children want to aspire to their names because in those days you called a child a name, something they could aspire to, something they, like a name of a prophet or something. But being called sorrow maker and trouble and pain. But that which man overlooks, God oversees. And he ended up, and it sounds as there, he ended up more honorable than his brothers. When he prayed that prayer, and we don't need to go into that, when he prayed that prayer, it says, and God answered 
is prayer. In 1 Chronicles 2, 55, there's a city named after Jabez. So this young man, in spite of being overlooked, in spite of all that stigma in his past, in spite of all that stuff that is perhaps called, in spite of all of the, the, the feelings he had growing up, when he sought God and he prayed that prayer and God answered that prayer, something happened to him and he changed. And he became more honorable than his brothers and he ended up founding a city where the scribes lived. He became a man of influence, a man of importance in his generation. God oversees when man overlooks. Have you been overlooked in your abilities? 1 Samuel 16, it talks about David. And it talks about Saul, who was very agitated as a king. And he wanted somebody to come and play a harp just to calm him. And so he asked for a great harpist to come and asked his courtiers, does anybody know where I can find a good harpist? And somebody says, yeah. Yeah, I've heard that that David, son of Jesse, I've heard that he he can play skillfully. So he sent for him, and the Bible says that David played the harp skillfully. This is the one that had been overlooked. Uh, This was the one that was just a little shepherd boy. This was the one that that even his father and all the brothers just really didn't even rate or count at all. But now he's in the king's court. This is the one who had an ability that hardly anybody even knew, just as one man seemed to pick it up somewhere. But, I mean, he wasn't famous for it. In fact, his family didn't talk about it. But it was latent within him all of that time. Probably played it out there in the fields when he's watching the sheep. But that ability was there all the time. And at the right moment, suddenly, God brings him to the attention of the king of Israel. In Proverbs 18 and 16, here's what it says. A man's gift will make room for him and bring him before great men. I wonder right now, is there an ability in you that's been overlooked by your family, by your friends, by this church, by your church, if you're listening? And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, you know, I never thought much about it. You know, I can play this or I can do this or I can do that, but I never really thought about it in, in the kingdom way. I never really thought that maybe God could use that. And maybe everybody's been overlooking it. Maybe you've overlooked it. But God oversees. You know, I remember years and years ago, I don't know how long it is ago now, this is Tony and Grace. How long, can you off the top of your head remember how long ago it was since she came to this church? Sorry to bounce that off you. Roughly. 18, 19 years. And I remember, I don't mind saying this right now, but I remember at the time we, we, we had lost our, our, our worship leader. And as far as we knew, there was nobody else in the church could play anything at that time. Uh, Tony and Grace had come sometime before that. They were just sitting in the congregation like they're sitting tonight and like you sit every week. And 
weren't really fully aware of their capabilities or their abilities. And then suddenly, suddenly, at the right time, and even though they were very patient, at the right time, suddenly, God began to bring them to the fore. And thank God for that couple right there. We love them, don't we? What an input they've had into this church over these 18, 19 years. And they just came, and even though they, they were they were with another group in Belfast, and they started to come up to us on Sundays, and, you know, there's a group of Malaysians and Indians and all kinds of people, medical students, they're all the, the believers that called them, didn't they? And there they were with all that ability, all that gifting, all of that, just sitting there. And then suddenly, the time came. And boy, they've been a blessing ever since. See how that works. And so, David would later become the great psalmist of Israel. Nobody in a million years thought that little shepherd boy out in the field sitting strumming his harp there. Nobody ever thought in a million years, much less his family, his friends, that he would become the great psalmist of Israel. And we sing his songs even thousands of years later. What about Stephen and Philip in Acts chapter 6? You remember those two? In Acts chapter 6, it says, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, you know, the church was bursting forth, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. These were the Greek-speaking people. Because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now remember at this time, there's at least, suddenly, from the day of Pentecost, a little time after, there's at least 5,000 believers now. And just within a matter of just days, suddenly the church just bursts forth. So you can see there's, there's problems on how they're uh, dealing with this. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Proctius, Nicanor, Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they sent before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of the Lord, then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen. Now this is some time afterwards. We, we don't know how long he spent uh, there in the kitchen. But this is some time afterwards. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. There arose some that called uh, what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and elders and the scribes, and they, brought, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. 
They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to seek blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we heard him say, we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him and saw his face as the face of an angel. And if you read into chapter 7, you read one of the greatest sermons in the New Testament. This man full of faith and the Holy Ghost and wisdom and power and fearless, he just preached to that crowd. He was on fire. Scripture after Scripture gave a whole history lesson the people of God. And right at the very end of it, he said, you stiff-necked generation. I mean, he didn't miss and hit the barn door when he was preaching. He says, you always resist the Holy Ghost. And then, of course, you know how that they martyred him how that they stoned him to death. Imagine what ability, what gifting, what anointing, what faith, what power, what wisdom, what seemingly a waste in the soup kitchen of all places. <laughs> Not even the great apostles even though they sought out men of reputation, not even the great apostles could have possibly imagined in a million years that serving in the soup kitchen was a fantastic evangelist, was a great and mighty preacher that would come out of the shadows and begin to move into his ministry. God oversees when man overlooks. But let me add this. What patience, what humility, what a servant's heart. All of that ability within him, all of that anointing, all of that power. I mean, he must have been just busting to get out there and do it. I mean, it just must have been on fire inside him. It's like shut up on his bones. But what humility, what patience. He just served soup in the kitchen until God released him. Sometimes it takes a long time for a man to recognize what God has authorized. And really, whenever hands are laid on people to come into ministry, to be ordained into ministry, we're simply just recognizing what God has already authorized. That's all we're doing. What about Philip? In chapter 8, you read how Philip had that great revival in Samaria. In verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, come out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And you know, and there were all kinds of sorcery and witchcraft and stuff going on in that city. And there was, you know, he, he, just, he just shook the whole city. What a mighty evangelist. And in the midst of all that revival, God tells him to go out into the desert because out there there's a, the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting in a chariot reading from the book of Isaiah and wondering, what in the world am I reading here? Is this man talking about himself or he's talking about somebody else? And God sends him out there and that man is gloriously saved. What an obedient servant, what a mighty servant of God. 
And he too is serving in the soup kitchen. With all of that potential, with all of that locked up ability, just waiting to be released. And yet very humbly, he serves in the soup kitchen. Overlooked, in a sense. Nobody could see that full potential that he had. Until whatever time came, we don't know why or when or what happened, but there came a moment when God released him from the soup kitchen. And he went from the pantry to the pulpit, from the soup kitchen to soul saving. That's, that's good, isn't it? That's what he went to. Not turned to it, but if you read Acts 21, verse 8, some 20 years later, you'll see that this good, godly man, Philip the Evangelist, you see, he had four daughters who could prophesy. So that heritage followed into his whole family. And it all began the soup kitchen. Fanai and I knows a young man many years ago sitting in our house. She remember this. Came from the church that Clifford and I used to go to. Sitting in our company, he was a bit of a blow. Boasted and bragged. Didn't do anything, but he boasted and bragged about everything. So he's sitting one night in our company, and Sally was there. And he said, I'm going to be an evangelist. I think he thought he was going to be the next Reinhardt Bunky. I think he was convinced of that. I'm going to be an evangelist. I says, wonderful, good. Tomorrow morning, you can start right away. Tomorrow morning, you can get out and knock some doors. And he looked after me as if it came from Mars. That wasn't his idea of being an evangelist. His idea of being an evangelist was being on God TV like Reinhard Bunke. That was his idea. <laughs> needless to say, he didn't go on any doors. And needless to say, he didn't evangelize anybody. No humility. No servant's heart. But what a difference there was in Stephen and Philip. Others may or they may not see what God has got for you in your future. And they may completely and utterly overlook you. But God oversees when man overlooks. And if you're faithful and if you are humble and if you're patient, a man's gift will make room for himself and bring him before great men. Have you been overlooked in spite of past victories? You know, David was overlooked by his father. He was overlooked by his brothers. In 1 Samuel 17, you remember whenever the the battle lines were drawn between the Philistines and the Israelites and Goliath on one side and the children of Israel and the other. The armies of Saul was on the other side in the valley of Ephes Damon. And how the father said to young David, uh, you know, there was three of the eldest sons was in Saul's army and the father said, I want you to take some cheeses and just some food down to them, some sandwiches and just go down there and just get it to them. See how they're doing. And so he tootled off 
left the sheep with the keeper and tootled off with the sandwiches underneath his arm and got down there. First time he saw the battle in array. He says, what's going on here? Why is that big fella shouting at us? I'm paraphrasing. I don't know if that's in the message or not. David, is that in the message? No. What's that big fella saying? What's he going on about? Why is nobody dealing with this? This is what he said. Why is nobody dealing with this? His brother said, we know the naughtiness of your heart. Now, you know, we say our children are naughty. We mean they're a bit, you know, they're just a wee bit playing up, but they're not really, really bad. But when you look up the word naughtiness, it really means you're really, really bad. You're wicked. You're a really bad hide coming out here and talking to us like that. That's really what they were saying. Completely and utterly overlooked. He was nothing. He was useless. He was just a little shepherd. He just brought the sandwiches out. And now he's asking big, big questions. Why is nobody doing something? Is there not a cause? Is nobody going to do something against this big, dirty giant? But this is the young boy. This is the young man now. As a shepherd boy, he had killed a lion and a bear. Now imagine if you come home and your dad says, well, how'd it go today, son? Pretty quiet out in the hills today. Well, actually, dad, a bit of an incident. A great big lion came over the hill and it grabbed one of the sheep and it chased after it and it caught him by the beard. And it took the sheep out of its mouth and it killed the lion. And then I maybe come home a week later and says, well, son, what was it like today? Well, Dad, you're not going to believe this, but it was a big bear this time. And I had to chase the bear. And I killed the bear with my bare hands. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? <laughs> but it didn't seem to impress them for whatever reason I don't know. Because they completely overlooked it. His brothers completely overlooked that. Here's the one that had killed the lion and the bear. He was fearless. But they totally overlooked it. But God hadn't overlooked it. God was overseeing all the time. And God had marked this. And when the day came when he went before Saul, he was just a stripling. He was just a lad, teenager. But he says, your servant killed the lion and the bear. And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That lion and bear was going to steal my sheep. They're going to take my father's sheep, and I wouldn't let them. My heavenly father will take care of the sheep of Israel. And suddenly David, David, went from zero to hero in an hour. Because it was God's time to move even though he had passed victories that were completely overlooked, but not by God. Those two years, Joseph lay in prison, forgotten by everybody. Forgotten by everybody. Seemed like all that he had accomplished in the past, all the favor he had got and all the good that he had done on Pharaoh's house was all gone. 
He was nothing. Insignificant. Just a little Israelite boy. He's in jail. Two years. But God oversees when man overlooks. And at the right time, at the right moment, at the right hour, he comes out of prison and he becomes the prime minister of all of Egypt. And he becomes the savior of Israel. Certainly the savior of his family, wasn't he? Winston Churchill, arguably the greatest, well, certainly the greatest wartime leader that Britain ever had, but from 1929, when he lost his cabinet position in the government, until 1939, when he joined Great Britain's war cabinet, he described it as the most difficult period of his life. You see, in 1924, when he was in the Conservative Party, he had been made Chancellor of the Exchequer. And as Chancellor, he had to balance the books and do what chancellors do, and he made a decision which he said later was the worst decision of his entire life. There's a thing called the gold standard then. We'll not go into all that means, but he took it upon himself, he was the exchequer, made that decision to, to go into this gold standard, to abide by this. Because he thought, and indeed everybody thought this would be the answer to the economic problems and woes the country was having. But it was a disaster. Uh, and Economically, the country began to slide, and, and then the miners went and strike. And in 1926, there was a general strike. The country was really in trouble. Economically, there were strikes, there were job losses, massive job losses. People, the whole country was on strike. It was terrible. It just plagued into economic slide. Then in 1929, there was a general election. And the Conservatives under Stanley Baldwin lost the election. Labour won it with Ramsay MacDonald. But as of right now today, it was a hung parliament. They didn't have a big enough majority. And as of today, just the same as today, the Liberal Party then, under David Lloyd George, became the kingmaker. History is repeating itself, isn't it? It's almost identical to what's happened today. And so the Conservatives lost the power. Churchill fell out of favor with the Conservatives, ended up leaving the whole party, didn't want them there anymore. And from 1929 to 1939, he went into what was called a political wilderness. In fact, the BBC, a few years ago, made a program about those 10 years of his life, and they called it Churchill, the Wilderness Years. He'd get it on DVD. It was a horrible, horrible time for me. He took up writing and he wrote all kinds of stuff and all the rest of it, but he really just, he, he was person non grata. I mean, he, he just was a pariah in, 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 in politics. Nobody wanted to know him. Nobody had time for him. They just, he just was, in fact, he felt his whole political career was over forever. That was it. Completely for 10 years, totally overlooked, but during that time, he, be, he began, he was one of the very first to see the danger of Hitler and the rise of Nazism. And even though he'd talk about it and he'd argue about it and he'd fight against it, people just really didn't want to know because it was him. And he'd fallen out of favor with just about everybody. But he was right. In 1939, 
he joined Great Britain's War Cabinet. And after the outbreak of World War II on September the 3rd, 1939, the day Britain declared war in Germany, Churchill was appointed First Lord of the Admiralty and a member of the War Cabinet, just as he had been in World War I, by the way. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. And suddenly, this man who was in the political wilderness, it was totally and utterly overlooked by everybody, written off by every pundit going, suddenly, he's the man for the hour. And during the last world war, during those years from 39 to 45, he led this nation like no other leader on earth could have led this nation. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. He made lots of mistakes. But he was the man who rallied the nation. He was the man who made the speeches about fighting them on the beaches. He was the man who said, offering them but blood, sweat, and tears. He was the man who had the gift of being able to get up and rally a whole nation. Remember at that time, Great Britain was on the verge. All that separated us from the whole of Nazism, even in France, was the English Channel. That was it. There was, the Home Guard was standing, standing with brush shafts because they had no guns. And Churchill rose up. You see, when man overlooks, God oversees. There's no question, absolutely none, that God raised up that man for the nation of Great Britain during that hour. Even though he was not a believer, but he was God's choice, and God raised him up. Do you know, when he died, the queen gave him a state funeral. And never were more world leaders gathered at anyone's funeral than Winston Churchill was a massive, one of the biggest funerals that Britain has ever seen. Not bad for a man that everybody had written off. Not bad for a man that everybody had overlooked and said he was finished, he was over, he'd just go there and paint and write books, that's him done. But God raised him up. Here's what the Bible says in Hebrews 6 and 10, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown towards his name. God's not going to forget your past victories. Not going to forget all the good that you've done in the past, all the things that you've done that maybe even you've forgotten about, that everybody's forgotten about, everybody has overlooked it, including yourself perhaps. But God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love which you've shown towards his name. Galatians 6 and 9, this is why it says, And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not, or if we do not lose heart. When John the Baptist in prison, we often said, when he was in prison, then suddenly, he must have been depressed. He was really on a downer. All his disciples were leaving him. Well, he didn't mind that because he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And so those disciples were leaving him to follow Jesus. That was fine. He was the one pointing the way to the Messiah. And, 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 in the, and in his heyday, that was wonderful, but now he's in prison. And he's on a downer, and he's depressed. And now he's uncertain. He sends the last few disciples he has, go and find out, is he the one that should come, or do we look for another? Have I made a mistake, or did I get this right? I've said that many times. And what did Jesus say? You can read it in the Gospels. Jesus said, go and tell John. Tell him about what I'm doing. Tell him about the lepers being healed, the dead being raised. In other words, tell him you were right. You were right. And then what did he do? He turned around to the crowd 
And he said, let me tell you about John the Baptist. There's never been a greater prophet in all of Israel than John the Baptist. John did no miracle. He wasn't like Elijah or Elisha. He wasn't like Moses. But he says, there's never been a greater prophet. No one has ever stirred you towards the Son of God more than John the Baptist. Jesus hadn't forgotten about his past victories. Even though others had forgotten about him, even though he was waiting his execution, even though he himself was overlooking all of what he had accomplished, even doubted it was worthwhile. But yet in spite of it, Jesus honored him. And then finally, have you been overlooked by the smallness of your giving? Now I didn't say by the stinginess of your giving. Because God doesn't overlook our stinginess. Overlooked by the smallness of your giving. Look at this finally in Mark chapter 12. And right towards the end of that chapter, Mark chapter 12, verse 41, it says, Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury. Many who were rich put in much. But then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrants a farthing. Not much. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, some people use this scripture as a cop-out in giving. They say, well, there you are, you see, God praised the woman who gave the least. Ah, you're missing the point. She actually gave the most. That's what Jesus said. More than all those who put into the treasury, even though monetarily it was the least, but it was the biggest in God's sight because it was all that she had. If somebody had a thousand pounds and they put a tenth of that in the offering would be a hundred pounds. If they put 50%, it would be 500 pounds. But if somebody had only one fiver and it was their absolutely last five pounds in their whole life and they put that in the offering, God would say, that's worth more and the rest. Because we give out of her abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. She didn't just give out of what she had, she gave all that she had, Jesus said. Her ability was small, but her attitude was large. Perhaps the one who gave the most actually gave the least. And so the reason why I say that is because you may not be in a position financially, you may not be in a position monetarily that you have very much to give. 
when it comes around to sponsorship or it comes around to the offering or it comes around to helping someone or it comes around to doing this or that or the other, things may be very, very tight. God sees that. And it's not so much what we give, but what we've, how much we have left after we give that God looks at. And if you give when things are tight and you give when it seems to be the least you can afford, it seems to be all you've got, that pleases God. And even though in the great scheme of things, like say running a church or helping a mission or doing something for the kingdom of God, in the great grand scheme of things, your paltry little bit may not seem very, very much. It may not even hardly dent it. But as far as God's concerned, this is an important thing. When he sees that, he counts it as very, very big. Because God just doesn't see things as we see them. He sees the bigger picture. He looks at the heart, doesn't he? He looks at the heart. So is there a way that you have been overlooked? Is there some way that it seems to be that either others has written you off or perhaps you've written yourself off? That God oversees when man overlooks. And God is a way, if you're honest and you're faithful and you're true and you're humble, God is a way of honoring you. God is a way of bringing you to the fore. God is a way of doing something to say, she's mine, he's mine. I want to honor him. I want to honor her. And God will do that. And those stories I read, you'll find that every single one of them, God found a way to honor them. But nobody else honored them. The disciples, not we women come up into putting the money in. No doubt the disciples, because it's all, you can see what people's putting in. No doubt the disciples was nosy and having a good look. And when they saw her, they probably were impressed by the big citizens. But when they saw the wee woman, they just totally overlooked her. That's why Jesus called them over, because he knew their hearts, didn't he? He called them over, and he said, look. Remember years ago, I'll say this in closing, years ago, we belonged to the Presbyterian Church, Sally and I, and our family did. I don't know if they still do it or not, but they sent around the, wee, the, wee, the end of the year, the wee book, what everybody has given in all year. And it was all listed, what everybody had given. Imagine doing that. Do they still do that? Do they still do that today? What? No names on it now. Well, there used to be names on it because we all knew the coal man. The coal man, there was, oh, there's the coal man. Look at the much the coal man put in. Oh, there's the wee woman around the clock. She took it all she put in. It's tight as two coats of paint, that wee woman. But she wasn't tight. She didn't have it. Now, who do you think God looked at? The coal man or the wee woman who didn't have much? Because he can read too, you know, can't he? But he reads the heart, doesn't he? And even though they overlooked the wee woman at the treasury, Jesus called them over because he knew their hearts. He says, look, I know you didn't make much of this wee woman. I know you're looking to see what she's putting in, but let me tell you something about this. And he corrected them. Because God oversees when man overlooks. So have you been overlooked? Do you feel like you're the invisible man I said at the beginning? Do you feel when you walk in the room, nobody sees you? You say, well, I've got this ability, but nobody even knows, much less seems to care. But God knows and God cares. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we're glad tonight that it's you who oversees our life. We're glad tonight, Lord, that you know all the details. 
you know us better than even we know ourselves. And even though nobody else may understand or know or see or feel but us, but Lord, you do. We thank you that your hand is upon each of us. Your eye is over all of us. Lord, even that insignificant little sparrow, you mentioned it. Even the very hairs of her head are all singularly numbered. That's how important we are in your sight. So Lord, let us leave here tonight encouraged that your eye is upon us. And Lord, if we walk humbly before you, Lord, you will lift us up. Thank you for the giftings, for the faith, for all that you put into each of us. So Lord, take us and use us for your honor and for your glory. And Lord, if we have to sit, if we have to wait, Lord, do you say, if we have to wait, Lord, no matter how long it takes, Lord, help us to be patient and wait in your timing to the glory of God in Christ's name. Amen.